Uh, thanks for attending. Thanks uh, for those of you watching on the internet at uh, Cato.org, and thanks to our conference staff and our busy interns who help uh, with these events. We had a very successful monetary conference here just yesterday, so we uh, we hold a lot of events here at Cato, and the conference staff deserves a lot of credit. Um, Speaking of events, if real estate is about location, 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 event planning in Washington is about timing. Um, and uh, you know, you can put together a really terrific panel and uh, great experts and all that kind of thing, but if the story isn't already in the news, it's really hard to build interest uh, in the topic, uh, even with the best organized event. Well, uh, needless to say, that's not a problem today. Uh, related to our subject of deficits and defense, I count no fewer than four different sets of recommendations pertaining to military spending and the nation's fiscal crisis issued within the past 10 days. Uh, all four have urged the President's Deficit Reduction Commission to include spending cuts, spending in their deliberations and what to cut. And although they differ on the particulars, all four argue that it's unrealistic and unwise to declare uh, that 23 percent of the federal budget is off limits in the search for spending cuts. And I think that's all to the good. Of course, the first proposal was put forward by the co-chairs of the President's Deficit Reduction Commission, Erskine Bowles and Alan Simpson. Uh, then just this past Wednesday, the Bipartisan Policy Center issued a report drafted by Alice Rivlin and uh, former Senator Pete Domenici, spelling out uh, another set of cuts. Uh, yesterday, the Project on Defense Alternatives and the Coalition for Realistic Foreign Policy, of which I'm a member, issued a letter signed by 46 scholars and policy experts contending that the nation's fiscal health uh, was a national security issue and therefore uh, spelling out an approach to defense spending and uh, responsible cuts that could be aligned to a different strategy. And then I just became aware of Winslow Wheeler at the Strauss Military Reform Project and seven others have issued a letter noting that how defense spending has risen and yet uh, defense, the fighting effectiveness has actually declined in recent years. They stress the need for greater congressional oversight and an audit, uh, which would be a wonderful idea. Um, all four of these sets of recommendations were published after we drafted our invite text for this event. Uh, in the invitation that many of you saw, we pointed out that some in Washington were hoping to protect the Pentagon's budget from scrutiny. And last month, the heads of the American Enterprise Institute and the Heritage Foundation joined forces with Bill Kristol of the Weekly Standard to declare defense spending off limits in the search for budget cuts. Military spending, they wrote in a Wall Street Journal op-ed, is neither the true source of our fiscal woes nor an appropriate target for indiscriminate budget slashing. They seem to be saying, nothing to see here, move along. Uh, if anything, they hinted that the Obama administration's plans to modestly increase uh, defense spending didn't go far enough. Well, of course, if there's really nothing to debate, then there's no point in having an event like this, and I trust that by the turnout today that you don't agree that there's nothing to see here. Uh, we anticipated that several of the newly elected members of Congress who uh, had pledged to bring spending under control uh, would, it would include military spending, and uh, some, even within the last few days, have said uh, that it is on the table, and we think that's all to the good. But the point of this discussion today is really to weigh the merits of these arguments. Uh, do we spend too much? Do we spend not enough? How, if at all, is defense spending connected to uh, the current deficit and our long-term uh, fiscal challenges? Uh, hopefully we'll make some predictions about which side will prevail and maybe uh, conclude with a broader discussion about the purpose of U.S. military power. Before I introduce our three panelists today, I, I did want to make one program note. You know, here at Cato, we really pride ourselves on our 
uh, our ability to bring together a range of perspectives on different issues, and we really did try to do that. We went out of our way to include at least one representative from the so-called Defending Defense Alliance. For real, that's, that's what they call themselves, Defending Defense. Uh, they were formed, of course, to discourage the incoming members of Congress from taking a closer look at military spending. So we offered them several dates to choose from. Uh, they declined to participate. One speaker even uh, backed out after indicating that this date would fit in his schedule. So, oh well, uh, their loss. Um, we have more than enough opinions up here uh, to stimulate a good discussion, and I'll do my best to stir up trouble with a few hard questions, and hopefully you in the audience will help us out if we uh, miss anything. So let me introduce the three speakers in the order that they will speak. Um, first, Barney Frank. He represents the 4th Congressional District of Massachusetts, and he's the chairman of the Committee on Financial Services. He was born in Bayonne, New Jersey, he attended Harvard University, earned a bachelor's degree in 1962, and then pursued additional graduate work in political science and was a teaching fellow there in government. He earned a JD from Harvard Law School in 1977. He was also busy in politics during this time. He advised uh, Boston Mayor Kevin White and Representative Michael Harrington in Congress. He began his own political career in the Massachusetts State House in 1973. He served for eight years before winning a seat in the U.S. Congress in 1980. During his nearly 30 years of service in Congress, he's often helped to pass bipartisan legislation, and he recently spearheaded, along with Congressman Ron Paul and several others, an effort to align our defense spending with a sensible foreign policy. The Sustainable Defense Task Force issued its report in June. I was honored to be included in that group, and it's a pleasure to welcome Congressman Frank back to Cato. Our second speaker today will be Lauren Thompson. He's the Chief Operating Officer of the nonprofit Lexington Institute and uh, Chief Executive Officer of Source Associates, a for-profit consultancy. He's a prolific writer covering uh, the topics we discussed today, the military spending, defense industrial base, and U.S. foreign policy. Prior to holding his present positions, he was Deputy Director of the Security Studies Program at Georgetown, and he taught graduate-level courses in strategy, technology, and media affairs at Georgetown. He also taught at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. He holds doctoral and master's degrees from Georgetown and a bachelor's of science degree uh, in political science from Northeastern University. And our third speaker today, I'm pleased to, uh, to introduce my colleague, Benjamin Friedman, research fellow here in Defense and Homeland Security Studies. His areas of expertise include counterterrorism, homeland security, and defense politics. He's the author of dozens of op-eds and journal articles and co-editor with me and Jim uh, Harper of Terrorizing Ourselves, Why U.S. Counterterrorism Policy is Failing and How to Fix It, published earlier this year. Ben also was a member of the Sustainable T Defense Task Force, and he and I co-authored a paper published in September Budgetary Savings from Military Restraint, published by Cato. We estimated the savings over the next 10 years, $1.22 trillion of a defense budget that was aligned to a strategy of restraint. Uh, ben is a graduate of Dartmouth College and a PhD candidate in political science and an affiliate of the Security Studies Program at MIT. So without any further ado, Congressman Frank. Thank you, Chris, and thanks to Cato for uh, keeping this debate going, uh, I, I, and, and you're very generous. I do have one quibble with the introduction. That's not really quibble, but I, I, you know, I've been doing this for a while, and at some point I'll stop doing it. And I am hoping once before I retire to be introduced with further ado, <laughs> I have a burning desire to know what it will look like. Uh, the debate is 
taking an encouraging turn, the fact that there is a debate. Uh, the, the, the most encouraging thing I heard recently on this issue was that John McCain was sufficiently worried to attack Ron Paul uh, for isolationism. Uh, you don't generally do that unless you think something is gaining traction. Um, and we have come a long way in a fairly short period of time, politically and intellectually, from this notion of exempting defense, which came from President Obama. Uh, the president whom I support on, on most issues, uh, I thought was, was quite wrong when he talked about his budget freeze and exempted defense from it. Uh, there was one discouraging thing, and I, I, I'm very troubled. I would like to see the New START Treaty ratified, but I don't think it's worth $65 billion. Uh, I, am, I am very troubled that what we are now being told is that we're going to have to modernize our nuclear arsenal. Um, you know, the one question I have is we're worried that our nuclear arsenal isn't good enough. Then whom is it not good enough? Uh, I think when you were talking about weapons, you really have to keep in mind the wisdom of a great 20th century philosopher, <clears throat> Henny Youngman, um, <laughs> in his uh, important philosophical uh, formulation, how's your wife compared to what? Um, compared to what is our nuclear arsenal in danger of uh, failing to be effective? Uh, I don't see any competitor on the horizon. I very much appreciate the work that uh, Chris and Ben have done. And by the way, it was an article that uh, Chris co-authored in, I think, Roll Call, in one of those papers, one of those interchangeable newspapers that <laughs> circulate on Capitol Hill. Um, he and, and a, uh, someone from the left, who Heather, Heather Holbert. Heather Holbert did a very good op-ed piece about the need to cut military spending, and it was that which led me to call them both and then to talk to Ron Paul and see if we could initiate this. And I believe we have this on the table better than I thought. It's still not where it should be, and that's what I want to talk about. But, but we have come a long way from President Obama, the liberal Democratic president, exempting defense from cuts to now all of these organizations, including that Deficit Reduction Commission, agreeing that there should be some cuts. So then the question is, how much and why? What we have seen, and I would throw in, by the way, uh, and give him credit, Secretary Gates, who has been the first defense secretary to talk seriously about trying to rein in spending. Uh, he's been attacked from uh, members of Congress, uh, both from the right and from the, uh, we want more money in our district, to kind of mutually supportive entities. The distinction, though, has to be made. There are a group of uh, proposals that have come out there, and they have in common the ones that uh, Chris listed and what Secretary Gates has proposed. They have in common the notion that we could essentially continue to do what we are now trying to do more efficiently. And I'm all for efficiency. Um, it is easier articulated than achieved. Uh, people talk about cutting fat. One of the things, I'm a great free speech advocate. It's another area where Cato and I have, uh, I mean, free speech, defense, and agriculture are the three points <laughs> where I find uh, a gambling I throw in under free speech. And those are our uh, areas of support. And Ron and I tend to be the free speech advocates in the, in the Congress. Um, but um, if I were to ban anything, I would ban the use of metaphors from discussions of public <laughs> policy, particularly in national security. I, I mean, I, you know, I, yes, Korea if you look at it on a map, it resembles a dagger pointed at Japan. Um, we say the back of Japan. Why the part of Japan that faces Asia is the back, I think, is a little ethnocentric <laughs> for us. But, um, 
<laughs> I don't care what shape Korea is, no one's going to be able to pick it up and stick it in Japan. So the notion that it's a dagger pointed at the back of Japan is really quite irrelevant. But people start debating that. I mean, the domino theory uh, was obviously the greatest example of, of metaphor getting people in, in, uh, in trouble. But one of the metaphors that misleads people is when we talk about fat. Because there is this notion uh, that implicitly that fat in government is layered and you can simply slice it off. In fact, if you want to stick with the metaphor, it's deeply marbled. And um, that doesn't make it a good thing if it's in excess, but it's harder to get rid of. So yes, I'm all for the efficiencies. And I hope now we will be able to get some. There is, of course, one obstacle to the efficiency, and that is my colleagues, uh, the, 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 the fight for it being in my own district. Um, and there's a subset of that which is troubling intellectually on the right, because when we start talking about debates, people who will tell me that highway building and hiring more police officers and firefighters adds nothing to economic activity do believe that uh, military spending somehow does. There is a, uh, a subset of Keynesianism that's alive and well in the conservative parts of Congress. It's uh, militarized Keynesianism that the government spending achieves nothing in the economy unless it's for weapons, which, of course, are not to be used. So the argument might be the other way. But, um, <laughs> but the basic point is this. I am all for those kinds of efforts. But what the Sustainable Defense Task Force did, and I'm delighted, and what, what Chris and Ben did particularly, was to go beyond the notion that we can do more efficiently and less expensively what we are now doing, and to say we've got to stop doing what we are trying to do. And not only what we are trying to do, but we often do badly. And we do it badly not because we are inept, but because it is very hard for a rich and powerful country to intervene in a society which has a whole lot of problems and make it into a much better society. We know how with weapons to stop bad people from doing bad things. We do not know how with the military, how to get into a society and make people do good things in a non-military way. I say that because uh, obviously we're we talking about two levels here. One is we need to redefine what genuine national security is. I have another uh, linguistic tick, if I could make the rules. People take a word that has positive associations and they expand its meaning so they can pick up those positive associations in areas where it really shouldn't happen. I think we should have this rule. Every word should mean as little as possible. And for every phenomenon, there should be a new word. I mean, national security means that no one's going to come and shoot us or blow us up. Uh, national security, I, I am sorry that people uh, die of illnesses, and I want to spend money to protect babies. But it's not a matter of our national security, and it fuzzes it up to say so. Um, I think we need to define national security more narrowly and say, okay, what do we need to do to protect our national security? Now, that includes, obviously, a lot of uh, energy against terrorism. The part about terrorism, though, is that it is, A, much harder to fight in some ways than a uh, conventional military approach, but B, less expensive. I mean, I wish nuclear submarines defeated terrorists because we have many, many, many more than they have. But <laughs> nuclear submarines don't help us against terrorists, and these things get all fuzzed together. So first of all, we have to redefine national security in a hard-edged way. Now, redefining national security in, in, in that very specific way doesn't rule out doing things with our forces that are more humanitarian in purpose. There's a philosophical argument there. I guess Ron and others would argue, no, uh, if you believe in a very limited government, the government's there to protect people, and if people want to 
uh, aid the people of Haiti who, who are facing cholera, et cetera. That can be done through voluntary efforts, um, but you don't do it through the coercive mechanisms of government. I understand that argument. I don't agree with it entirely. Uh, but I do think we ought to be clear what that expanding the concept of national security to cover every good impulse we have does not serve things well. Um, as to doing humanitarian things, I think there is some justification for that. I do think coming to the aid of people who are under assault, look, it is conceivable that there would be people threatened with a terrible set of events, uh, some sort of uh, uh, near genocidal approach that we could stop militarily. And there are cases when I think it would be useful even if it wasn't necessarily in our interest. I am, however, far less morally conflicted by arguing for a substantial reduction in what we try to do by the fact that it almost never works. I mean, if I thought we could make Iraq into a thriving democracy, then I would not be as eager as I am to pull our troops out in about an hour, uh, limited only by what it takes physically to get them out. I have to say the concept of non-combat troops is a very dangerous one. If it isn't combat, what the hell are they doing there? Uh, there is, of course, another problem, which is that the bad guys don't know that they're non-combat troops, <laughs> and they continue to shoot at them, which puts them in an awkward situation. But they're essentially there to mediate political and religious disputes, which is an entirely inappropriate function for the military. What I'm saying, though, is that my, my I am not as morally conflicted as I might be, because it rarely works. It's very hard, especially, it may be possible for a wealthy Western society heavily to intervene in a non-Western, non-white, uh, uh, poor society and help them out, but probably not us. Given much of what I think is unfair, the, the, the anger about America, the jealousies, whatever, we're often the least useful people to go in there. And all we do is, is, is make people angrier at us. Um, so uh, the, the point is that we need to go beyond the current thing. Now, I believe people here, and I'll take some credit and, and others, I take some credit for the fact that we have now under discussion how to do what we are now doing in the defense area more efficiently, and that is helpful, as opposed to increasing it, as even the president had been talking about a little while ago. We have connected that dot that you can't talk about reducing the deficit in a rational way without talking about the military. But now we have to go beyond that and say, look, let's examine what the military is doing. Yes, I would like to bring some troops home, but I would like to bring them home all the way to their houses. Um, I, I don't want 15,000 Marines on Okinawa, but I don't think once we accept that we don't need them on Okinawa that we need them in America. Uh, we can reduce end strength, and we have to do that. We are not talking, I believe, about anything that would remotely threaten our national security. And let me just agree with, uh, was it Crystal and uh, uh, the others you mentioned? I, I am willing to come out firmly against indiscriminate slashing of almost anything. Um, that's not a good idea. But we have clearly got military forces far beyond what we need. Now, let me just throw in one other thing, because I, had I been at the monetary conference, we would obviously not have been in as much agreement as we are today. But there is one great irony here. We have our European allies attacking Ben Bernanke, not just specifically for what he's doing, but for daring to take American economic interests into account and abandoning what is apparently our sole responsibility to be the only country in the world that worries only about other people and not ourselves. Um, and what's interesting is they say, listen, if you're going to pump, cut your deficit, cut your deficit. 
if we were to suggest that we could cut our deficit by reducing, for instance, the troops in Europe, and I think, by the way, as I talk about this, the time has clearly come to re-examine NATO. Uh, NATO was a wonderful achievement of Harry Truman. But you know, things don't last forever. If you project back in time, that is, if you go back from NATO to today is 61 years. If you go back 61 years from NATO, Grover Cleveland is president of the United States. Very few things of importance lasted from Grover Cleveland uh, till now. The only one I can think of is uh, the Baby Ruth candy bar, which was named, of course, for his daughter, who was born uh, during his second term in the White House. Um, but the, the point is that our allies are telling us two things. First of all, you carry the defense burden. They're worried in Western Europe about terrorism coming from Afghanistan. And how are they manifesting that worry? By Germany and England and everybody else cutting their military forces and withdrawing their military forces. So on the one hand, it is our obligation to be the world's protector, and we are pressed to do that. Well, they cut back on their military, but on the other hand, uh, they object to doing anything other than cutting the, the, uh, the, the deficit. Um, it, it, I, will be again at Davos, and they will talk about, well, maybe it's time for the dollar not to be the, the world standard. I, I, my answer is them, the Pentagon shouldn't be the world's military. Uh, if you really feel threatened, defend yourself. My current greatest example is, and I'm, I guess I'll have a contest here, this missile defense system we are going to build to protect what, Poland and, and, and Bulgaria. And, who is aiming missiles at Poland and Bulgaria? Does anybody have any idea? I, we're doing this apparently to it's a kind of a feel-good thing, and it's very expensive therapy. So just uh, the fundamental point is I welcome what's happening, but the time has come now to say we've got to go beyond that. We are over-extending ourselves. We are over-committed. We haven't rashly thought what we need to do and what we don't. Yes, we, we should protect our national security, which clearly we do much less expensively. We should more clearly define national security, except that it's not going to be controversial in America that we do that. And then when we go beyond that, talk about efforts that are humanitarian. By the way, I would give Bill Clinton great credit. I think uh, the, the southern Yugoslavia intervention worked very well. Uh, but if we're going to do those things, we have to be clear about what we are doing, that they are beyond the national security, narrowly defined, and have some understanding of our limitations. And finally, even if it is humanitarian there, you do the, uh, the, the, the dollar comparison. Even if you think we can accomplish some great good in Iraq, the loss of important values here at home that come from spending the tens of billions there rather than either cutting taxes or spending them here, and we will differ about how to do that, but I would put tax cuts and intelligence spending here, both of them, ahead in real value of what we can accomplish in Iraq given the limitations of our doing from the outside. So long, long time to say, Yes, good, we're going to do what we are now doing more efficiently. Our job now is to press to make it clear that we are trying to do far more than needs to be done and that can be done effectively even if you thought it should be done and that allows us to get into the range uh, uh, of the trillion plus over a 10-year uh, period that these guys are talking about. Thank you, sir. <laughs> Good afternoon. When the current decade began, the United States accounted for approximately a third of global economic output and approximately a third of global military production, global military spending. Today, 10 years later, the United States accounts for about a quarter of global economic output 
and about half of military spending. I think it's kind of obvious that the gap between those two measures is unsustainable. 5% of the world's population cannot continue to sustain 50% of the world's military spending while generating 25% or less of economic output. So I am not here to defend the present level of U.S. military spending. In fact, I strongly suspect that Congressman Frank's proposal to cut a trillion dollars out of defense spending over 10 years is going to look a bit on the light side by the time that we get to the end of, of deficit cutting. However, what I would like to do is to talk about the consequences of cutting some of the weapons systems that deficit panels have proposed in the various reports that Chris referenced in his opening remarks. As you probably know, the normal pattern in defense downturns is to cut defense spending, uh, rather weapons spending first, and to cut it furthest, a pattern that is already repeating itself today, even before the defense spending has begun falling. Secretary Gates claims that since the Obama administration began, he has cut $330 billion in future weapons spending, which is a lot more money than he has cut from any other category of military activity. Now a series of deficit-cutting panels is calling for additional weapons cuts, and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff say that says that when uh, the February budget submission for the 2012 request is presented, there will be further major weapons cuts from the Pentagon. I think that the zeal for slashing military technology is going to continue far beyond when we have claimed all of the low-hanging fruit, all of the obvious candidates of budget cutting, because politically it's just a lot easier to cut some obscure weapons system than it is to cut a benefit program. But there are consequences to killing weapons systems that typically get overlooked when we get into these sorts of periods. First of all, you squander all the money that you have spent on the weapons system up to that point. Secondly, you deprive the military of the capabilities that the weapon would have delivered. And then thirdly, if it's a validated warfighting requirement, you have to go out and get something else to provide the capability that you have now canceled. When these realities are factored into the process of terminating a weapon system, what you discover is that sometimes the human and the budgetary costs of making the cut dwarf any projected savings. I'd like to illustrate that problem by looking at four big-ticket weapon systems that are very popular these days on the hit list of various deficit uh, commissions and panels. Let's start with the expeditionary fighting vehicle, everybody's favorite for the crosshairs. Uh, it is, I, I, I don't think I've seen a single deficit panel that hasn't recommended killing the Marine Corps' expeditionary fighting vehicle. And with good reason, because it costs as much as a middle school, and it's got reliability problems. I mean, it costs over $10 million a copy. However, the expeditionary fighting vehicle also delivers more speed, more range, more firepower, and more protection than the existing amphibious vehicle used by the Marine Corps. Now, that's significant because the Marine Corps has been waiting decades to get a replacement of its Cold War expeditionary vehicles, and in the meantime, the ones that it's riding in today have become sitting ducks to precision-guided munitions. The expeditionary 
uh, fighting vehicle will eliminate most of the problems that the current vehicle has. It'll turn what used to be an obstacle, the sea, into a maneuver space, and most importantly, it would allow the Marines to come ashore at places where they are least likely to suffer casualties. Now, near as I can tell, the Marine Corps does not have a backup option if the EFE is canceled. So it would then be left with two choices. It can either get out of the amphibious warfare business, or it can continue to do amphibious missions and suffer fairly substantial casualties. The fashionable view, as some of you have no doubt heard from uh, Secretary Gates, is that, well, you know, we probably aren't going to need to do expeditionary warfare of that kind in the future. Certainly not going on to the beach after coming in across the sea from ships offshore. I mean, you know, I'm glad that somebody can actually see the future more clearly than the rest of us. It's too bad he's not on Wall Street. But, but as far as I can tell, we've managed to miss every major threat we've encountered for the last 50 years. And if you look at all the rogue states that we are concerned with today, from Venezuela to Iran to North Korea, each one of them has a coastline that would be a lot safer to approach in an expeditionary fighting vehicle than in the current vehicle. So here's the bottom line. Either we buy some EFEs or we start over with a costly new development program, wasting billions of dollars that have already been spent, and maybe in the process, wasting the lives of several thousand Marines who end up going ashore in death traps. Second program, the V-22 Osprey tilt rotor is another favorite target of deficit panels. Uh, the chairman of the President's Deficit Commission and the Domenici Rivlin Report urge an early end to production of V-22, citing its troubled history and its high unit cost. But the V-22 is genuinely unique. It combines the vertical agility of a helicopter with the range and the speed of a fixed-wing aircraft. Uh, the Marine Corps has built its entire future concept of operations around the presumed availability of the airframe. And maybe more importantly, from a budgetary point of view, it's a $60 billion program, and they've already spent $50 billion, okay? In addition to that, the Air Force is using its version, a somewhat different version of the V-22, to do uh, special operations insertions and rescue missions that would be much more difficult to do, maybe impossible to do, using conventional helicopters. The simple reality is that without the Osprey, both of those services would see their future warfighting options limited considerably because there are some places you cannot get to in a conventional helicopter. There are some places you cannot land with a conventional aircraft that you can go to using a tilt rotor. Simpson-Bowles implicitly conceded this point when they argued the deep penetration capabilities of the V-22 were one reason why we didn't need the expeditionary fighting vehicle. Unfortunately, <laughs> they said that in the paragraph after <clears throat> recommending that we cut the V-22. So what's wrong with this picture? Bottom line, if we prematurely terminate V-22 production now, we will undercut the value of decades' worth of investment in tilt-rotor technology. We will hobble expeditionary warfare plans. We'll have to buy more conventional helicopters. And, oh, by the way, we'll probably endanger the lives of a large number of Marines, just like killing the EFE would have. The Joint Tactical Radio System is another favorite of, of deficit cutters, uh, which is sort of surprising because, near as I can tell, none of the panels have the foggiest notion of what it is. Uh, 
Jitters is what's called a software reconfigurable radio. What that means in simple terms is that instead of buying a lot of hardware, when you want to upgrade or modify the performance of the thing, you just download some software. So it saves a fair amount of money over time. More importantly, what it does is it opens the door to a single communications device that can communicate across the entire battlefield, the entire joint force, uh, which is something we don't have today and have never had in the past. It won't totally lift the fog of war, but it'll definitely improve the visibility for the friendly force. Now, Simpson-Bowles, their report says that uh, this is a program with longstanding problems that don't appear to be resolved, but that is only half true. Actually, the worst problems with the Army version, those are largely fixed according to recent test results. And in the case of the Navy and the Air Force versions, there weren't problems to begin with. But the important point that all the critics seem to miss is that if you don't buy the joint tactical radio system, then you've got dozens of incompatible legacy radios across the joint force that all have to be supported. Somebody has to give them communications, and the existing installed base not only is very expensive to support, but it can't even talk to various parts of it. I mean, one part in the Marine Corps can't talk to the Air Force. The Air Force can't talk to the Navy. The whole point of doing this program was to try to overcome that with something that was cheaper to maintain over the long run. You realize today that we have cargo planes in Afghanistan that are flying around with six or eight radios? Well, that's the kind of problem, logistical and, and operational, would be resolved if we bought this thing. But it costs money to buy. Somehow we notice the price tag of the upfront program much more readily than we notice the carrying costs of all those antique radios in the joint force. So bottom line, if the joint tactical radio system is killed, then the military will have to spend billions of dollars on outmoded devices keeping them functioning without even being able to communicate effectively in many life-threatening circumstances. And so, once again, you kill the program, and in the end, some people are going to die. That brings me to my last example of a weapon system targeted by the deficit panels, the Virginia-class submarine. Uh, the Domenici Rivlin panel has suggested that major savings could be realized by, quote-unquote, deferring construction of the submarine. Uh, this may well be the dumbest defense idea advanced by any deficit panel. Aside from the fact that we've already ordered a dozen of them, seven of which have been delivered, this is the only submarine construction program in the United States. So when you say you're going to defer it, you're not really talking about not buying a submarine. You're talking about getting out of the building of submarines in the United States for the first time in, oh, I don't know, roughly a century. If that were to actually occur, the skills and the supplier base associated with submarine construction in places like New England and the Tidewater would disappear very rapidly, and trying to ever get it back would be horrendously expensive. But we wouldn't just be ad abandoning submarine construction. We would basically be abandoning undersea warfare in general. Why? Because all of our Cold War attack submarines are going to start retiring in the coming decade at the rate of three or four a year. They have to retire. The reactor vessels are embrittled, and they'd be dangerous to continue operating because they've already been in use for, what, 30 to 40 years in some cases. There's also a lot of other age-related problems with the existing submarine fleet. That submarine fleet is down to 50 boats already to cover the entire world. Now, isn't it a little odd that a panel of experts would be proposing getting out of submarine construction and out of undersea warfare 
at precisely the moment when we're hearing that our surface fleet is vulnerable in the Western Pacific? The Virginia class is by far the most survivable vessel that we have in the regular Navy fleet. It's designed to do everything from clandestine intelligence gathering to anti-submarine warfare to land attack to special operations insertion. It can do whatever a threat demands be done of it. It's not only versatile, but actually the cost has been falling on each successive boat. The first boat, 15 million man hours. The current boat, I believe, is less than 10 million man hours. That's a big drop. So when you see a budget panel saying, let's get rid of the Virginia class, it really means one or two things. Either they don't understand the program or they don't understand the requirements of national security. Even if we decided we wanted to be an autarkic, isolationist country, we would still need submarines in order to protect our interests around the world. Now, perhaps you're wondering why I'm devoting my time today to talking about weapons systems instead of talking about the various other proposals that deficit panels have rendered for doing things like modifying TRICARE or closing bases. The reason is simple. None of those other things are going to happen. <laughs> At least not anytime soon. But we have already embarked on a campaign of big weapons cuts. Now, my point is not that we should stop cutting weapons that are unneeded or overpriced. I mean, I understand that it's ridiculous to spend $800,000 for a next generation Jeep. That's kind of obvious. My point is that we ought to be honest about the weapons cuts that we are proposing mean in fiscal and human terms. And that honesty begins with making some minimal effort to inform ourselves on the nature of these programs, on how they work, why they're being bought, and so on. That's not what I see in the deficit-cutting uh, proposals that have been advanced by most of the panels. What I see is that they really don't understand what they're proposing to do in the weapons arena. And as a consequence, they propose ideas that are either dangerous or costly, or just counterproductive to their larger purposes. So my only point here, and I, I'm not a champion of any one of these weapon systems in particular, my only point here is that if we're going to do this right, then we need to understand what it is we're doing, and not just slash things because it sounds like a good idea. Thank you. <clears throat> All right. Well, um, I'm uh, I'm real happy to be here as the uh, undistinguished member of a very distinguished panel. I um, I always tell my increasingly unhappy uh, dissertation advisor that uh, my uh, project might not be done yet, but I procrastinate in really fun ways, and uh, this is another example of that. I think um, I'm going to talk about the the paper that uh, Chris alluded to that that we co-wrote, uh, budgetary savings from military restraint. Even though I assume most of you have already read it. Um, that was a joke. Um, I'm going to uh, so I'm going to approach that by uh, outlining uh, uh, three methods of cutting defense spending, and I'm going to I'm actually going to repeat in a different way some of what uh, Barney Frank said. Um, first is to do the same thing with less money, which is uh, to say that you can be more efficient. The second is the is the Nike way: just do it, uh, just cut spending, and hope that it will trigger efficiency gains and uh, reprioritization of ambitions, uh, which is to say strategic change. And the third strategy, which, which is ours, is, is, to, is to say do less. Is, in other words, to start with strategic change um, and uh, maybe even uh, new doctrine in the services uh, and let that drive savings. 
Um, so the first approach is the most popular, uh, which is why it promises to save so little. As, as uh, Barney alluded to, efficiency like children and federal holidays is something that everybody in, in Washington can be, can be for. There's no inefficiency caucus on the Hill that I'm aware of. Um, and uh, the trouble is that one man's waste is another man's essential national security requirement. What seems inefficient from a cost-benefit or uh, auditor-type standpoint is often very politically efficient, which is why it exists. And uh, you know, even going after, after low-hanging inefficiency fruit like Joint Forces Command, which was uh, the, one of the first things Secretary uh, Gates announced that he wanted to go after on this efficiency drive, well, that requires a fight. And you have half of Virginia and a large portion of the House Armed Services Committee up in arms no pun intended, uh, in, in uh, resistance to that, to that change. And after that, it gets harder uh, to find efficiency gains. And, and so I, I, I say that the, the search for efficiency uh, in the Pentagon reminds me a little of the search for booze in the movie The Untouchables, where uh, you know, there's this scene where Malone, which is Sean Connery's character, and Elliot Ness, which is Kevin Costner, are, are about to conduct their, what turns out to be their first successful liquor raid, and they're standing in Chicago, in downtown Chicago, across the street from a police station. And uh, right before they go in, uh, Ness looks at Malone, and he says, what, here? And, uh, and Malone says, Mr. Ness, everybody knows where the booze is. The problem isn't finding it. The problem is who wants to cross Capone. And, and so to me, the problem with saving money or finding efficiencies in DOD uh, is not finding things to cut, but finding a way to overcome the political opposition to doing so. Everyone that studies defense uh, knows that we got more shipyards in the United States than we need, uh, given the size of the Navy. So we're carrying excess overhead in every procurement, uh, every acquisition decision on a ship in the Navy. Uh, but doing something about that's hard because of the political uh, forces that all those jobs in those states create. The biggest employer in Maine is, is Bath Ironworks. Um, everybody knows that we could save money on defense by reforming commissaries on bases or by uh, using premiums and co-pays on TRICARE to control costs, but those are very popular uh, programs uh, in the services. Uh, so it, it takes a political fight. The, the costs of the programs are diffuse. Uh, they uh, come out in higher taxes or, or deficits, and the benefits are concentrated. So it's, it's hard to find someone who, who wants to take on the fight, uh, and even harder to win it. Um, and uh, uh, one virtue of uh, economic downturns is that it lessens this problem, that it, that it concentrates the costs of spending. Uh, for, for both people and government, wealth limits choice, and austerity is, is uh, a good auditor, maybe the best auditor. A person uh, that loses income uh, and has to cut spending all of a sudden has to make some more choices about their money. They uh, have to ask themselves what they want the most and uh, which costs are excessive, and in government, uh, the prospect of reduced spending or even slowed spending uh, threatens political truces that luxury bought. Priorities compete more, uh, making ideolo ideology more important and, and sharpening debate. I mean, we're all here today because of, because of uh, deficits. And the, the arguments that I'm about to make about defense strategy are neither new nor inappropriate in times of surplus and booms, uh, but the sympathetic audience has grown uh, because of the deficit and fears about what it's going to cause in other spending programs. And the, the same effect holds within DOD, which is why the second 
uh, way to cut uh, defense spending the Nike way is not uh, as, uh, as dumb as it initially appears. The reduced budgets will cause heightened competition for resources uh, within the services and encourage them to find efficiencies to, uh, and protect their favored missions. I mean, um, I would think that maybe if, if there's more pressure on the re Marine Corps' budget, they might themselves go after at some point the, the V-22 because the problem with that is that, uh, yeah, it, it has longer range uh, than uh, all the helicopters the Marines has, but it, the trouble is that those other helicopters that have less range need to carry a lot of the supplies that the V-22 can't because it doesn't have the lift. So the real range of the V-22 is the range of the, the support helicopters that are going to be bringing uh, all the artillery and other things that Marines flying in the V-22 need. So I think maybe you put some pressure on the Marines, they might make some decisions to get rid of the things that are uh, more easily sacrificed. And it's probably wishful thinking to think they'll go after V-22, but there might be some other inefficiencies uh, that, they, that they might go after. The problem with this method of, of cutting defense is, is uh, that it risks leaving you with a smaller military doing the same job, uh, which is unfair to the force and bad for the country. And, uh, and the, the defense portion of the uh, Bull-Simpson deficit reduction plan uh, is bold, and I think it's politically helpful, uh, but I think it relies too much on these methods of cutting defense spending. By my count, almost 50 percent of the cuts they have in there are uh, purported efficiency gains. Uh, and I don't think that's, that's uh, very realistic. And there's about one sentence in their PowerPoint presentation, one bullet point that says anything at all about uh, changing strategy or reducing commitment. So I think that's bad policy and politics because the, the cuts are somewhat imaginary and yet they can still get zinged for overburdening the force. So what we advocate is, is the third uh, or strategic path to cuts where you start with more modest goals, what we call restraint. And uh, I think we suffer in the United States today from a kind of strategic incontinence where we pile on uh, objectives uh, and responsibilities on the military without uh, much thought about whether or not they're good objectives. And that's a product of luxury, uh, which lets us evade choice. And the, the recent quadrennial defense review uh, is an example. It's more a list of objectives and hopes than a method of choosing among them. Uh, so restraint means husbanding American power and wealth rather than dissipating it by uh, spreading promises and forces willy-nilly and drawing us into conflicts that we could avoid. And, and there are four sort of guiding insights in this which are in our paper. Um, the first is that we don't need to defend Europe from nothing in Japan, South Korea, and others from dangers they can afford to meet themselves. Uh, we committed to defend these nations when they were weaker than enemies that we thought threatened us. Uh, and now things have changed. The New Deal is that we agree to defend them and they agree to let us. Um, and uh, I think that, that causes two problems, free riding and moral hazard. Um, by paying for their defense, uh, we're effectively subsidizing uh, their generous social welfare programs, uh, which uh, to me means that most Republicans who are, of course, for these commitments are today more interested in providing entitlements to Europeans than to Americans. Um, and I, I don't blame our, our allies for this, just as I don't blame most of you for uh, eating the free lunch that the Cato Institute's about to provide you. It's our fault. <laughs> Um, and some of our allies also engage in, in reckless behavior. This is moral hazard under the assumption that we'll bail them out when they cause trouble. And I think you see this uh, in Japan with these people going to this war shrine all the time and enraging, uh, enraging the Chinese. I think you see it in Taiwan. You see it in Israel. And uh, I think you even see it in places like Georgia, which we have not been foolish enough to formally agree to defend, uh, but they thought maybe they had some sort of guarantee. So we're providing disincentives in some ways for accommodation among neighboring states. 
So I say, and I also would add that letting our allies be their own first line of defense is not akin to renouncing them or saying that we don't care about them or like them or abandoning geopolitics. It, it, the, our allies, if we, our European allies would huff and puff if we said we're leaving NATO, but after that they'd get along just fine with the United States uh, if we were more distant because they've got all sorts of good reasons to do so. A second insight that, that drives our, our paper and our analysis here is, is that occupying and trying to fix failed states with ground forces is not a good counterterrorism method. And we've recently learned the hard way uh, that we have the power to occupy weak states at great cost and blood and treasure, but not uh, the power to fix them by organizing their politics. And also that people tend to dislike having their country occupied, and that might even be a cause of terrorism. So uh, if that sounds glib, I, I encourage you to read the paper that Chris and I wrote on this called uh, Learning the Right Lessons from Iraq, which gives more detail. Now, the, the third insider point here is that um, it is hubristic to say, as our friends at Heritage and AEI who wouldn't come over here are now so fond of doing, uh, that we alone, the United States, can provide international stability. That, that notion both uh, overestimates our ability to referee most of the world and underestimates other states' desire to, to police their own regions or their ability to police their own regions if we don't. And the final point that, that guides our uh, strategy is, is that the, the dirty secret of, of American defense politics is that we're pretty safe here in the United States, uh, even with a small defense budget because of, because of our wealth, because of our geography, and because of nukes. Um, and uh, much of what we do abroad only matters to our security on the margins. Uh, Iran and North Korea are uh, awful regimes, and uh, they're troublemakers, but they're far off ones without the capacity uh, or will, I think, to attack us. Uh, Russia now uh, has an economy the size of Portugal and Italy combined, and an aging population, and a rusty conventional force that I think would have trouble getting into the Ukraine uh, successfully, let alone reclaiming their Soviet empire. China is, of course, growing its military, uh, but even under the plan Chris and I recommend, uh, would still be uh, far behind us and see an air capability. And we'd still be spending about more than half of the Chinese military budget on research and development alone under our plan. Um, and of course, the way to hedge against uh, China's rise is, is not to arm more heavily today, but stay rich uh, so that we can arm uh, down the road if we have to. Finally, the, the constellation of jihadists that we refer to as al-Qaeda are certainly a problem, uh, but they're best dealt with by policing and intelligence cooperation, and if need be, uh, niche and, and relatively cheap military capabilities like surveillance assets, drones, and special operations forces, not armies and navies. So I won't go into detail here about, about the, uh, the cuts that we think this strategy allows, and you can read our paper for that if you haven't already. I'll just say uh, that, that we, uh, it's, it's 1.2 trillion and change, as Chris said, over 10 years. Uh, and uh, we propose deep cuts to the Army and Marine Corps uh, in particular because we think we have a, a less ground force-centric idea of what the U.S. military ought to be up to, but also cuts to the size of the Navy in terms of force structure and, and the Air Force. And we also think independent of this strategy that, that we could have a much smaller nuclear arsenal, uh, a dyad instead of a triad with bombers uh, no longer being part of it because a smaller force gives us all the deterrence we need and then some. And uh, these cuts in force structure allow uh, significant cuts in administration, in, in military real estate, uh, and uh, intelligence, and, and most of all, personnel. We think we, you know, we're going to save money on, on personnel costs, mostly by having fewer personnel, although we do agree uh, with some of the recommendations about controlling the costs of um, salary increases, particularly after the 
wars, uh, you know, Iraq and Afghanistan, and in controlling, as I already mentioned, uh, the, the cost of TRICARE uh, through premiums and co-pays. Now, uh, lots of people, to finish up, lots of people call uh, this sort of thinking isolationist and an immoral abandonment of our responsibility to promote liberalism, so let me just respond to both. And, and Barney already mentioned that uh, John McCain and Lindsey Graham have starting, started to refer already to the, to the isolationist wing of the Republican Party, and I'll just say on behalf of, um, of Cato that if they find them, they should uh, let us know. Uh, as you know, we've been, we've been looking for a while, and we haven't found much beyond the Paul family. Um, <laughs> But we're not, we're not isolationists here. We're, we're for free trade diplomacy and increased immigration. We don't want no uh, wars or allies. We want fewer. Uh, our proposed military would require Americans to spend 35 or 40 percent of world military spending as opposed to half. Um, and, uh, and though I'm more skeptical than most people about the virtues of hegemony, uh, I think uh, that, that our military, our plan for our military leaves us with vast superiority vis-a-vis -vis any other military. So uh, that's only isolationist compared to an utterly bloated idea of what our security requires. And I'm with Walter Lippmann, who once said that uh, he was happy to be called a neo-isolationist compared to the people who thought they could run the world. Um, and as for... Uh, Morality, well, I'm, I'm for it. I'm for an ethic of responsibility that gives pride of place to possible goods at home rather than chasing less possible ones abroad. Uh, I think our responsibilities start here. Uh, I think liberalism spreads by example, uh, not force, as some famous American once said, and, uh, and so we should uh, work on perfecting it here. Uh, and, and finally, I note that there are some pretty good moral reasons to uh, have a more restrained idea of how many wars we ought to fight here in the United States. And uh, so I'll just stop there and hope Chris asks the questions that I asked him to ask so that I can give the rest of my talk. <laughs> Thank you all. Yes, Ben, I will ask the questions that you asked me to ask. Um, <clears throat> three quick questions. You've all been very uh, patient, and we'll give a little more time because we've got a late start, if you, can, if you can stick with us. The first question I have is about Inter-service competition. Quick story. When I, I was a I was a midshipman at uh, the Navy ROTC unit at George Washington University when Goldwater Nichols was passed, and everyone thought it, it like all other inter-service uh, rivalry killing uh, proposals would die a painful death. Um, well, of course it didn't. Uh, and uh, jointness is not just a fiction. It's a it's a very real thing. And now I wonder if jointness has gone too far, and do the services not fight with one another enough? Is there not enough competition? Does anyone have a comment on that? Do we, do, should we be looking forward to competition among the services under some kind of fiscal constraint? Well, I would just say that uh, obviously I, you know, set this up. I, I, I you were supposed to answer first. You see. I think that there's a lot to be said for um, getting rid of this deal that we've had in the services uh, since the Kennedy administration, more or less, where they have equal service shares. I think it incentivizes them to um, try to grow the whole pie rather than going after each other's share of the pie. And I think making them do the latter will have beneficial results in terms of finding efficiencies, but also in terms of the management of the Pentagon, because the, the best information about what's wrong with some of these programs is held by its potential competitors in other services or even within the same service. So, uh, and that if, right now the services don't have a lot of incentive to talk about that kind of thing because they all win together. 
So uh, I think, you know, if you're an offshore balancer, maybe you want to put the Navy first and, and say that the other services uh, can fight for the remainder. And that, that's more or less what the Eisenhower administration did, uh, except with the Air Force first uh, in the, in the uh, new look strategy. And we got some good results out of that, like submarine launched ballistic missiles as the Navy struggled to become relevant to, to that kind of fight. You know, I, I, I think the notion that um, the Pentagon is this place where everybody goes along to get along is um, a little overstated. I mean, I've spent like 20 years dealing with the place, and frankly, it reminds me more of former Yugoslavia. Um, <laughs> I mean, just, just in the last month, the Navy has taken its latest run, maybe the 20th or so, at trying to kill the Marine Corps version of the F-35. They've been trying for 20 years. They just haven't succeeded. This happens a lot. I mean, if you want to get a good game going, you don't really need to leave the Department of the Navy to start scoring points on one side or the other because they're constantly at each other's throats. Basically, the Navy's attitude is if you get more V-22s, I get less destroyers. So we need to go to OSD and argue this out. They're actually doing it right now in OSD on the expeditionary fighting vehicle. And I'm confident that the Navy has succeeded in killing the thing, right? But it's not because they wanted to save money or they had an alternative way of doing the mission. They just wanted to use the money for something else. The whole building's like that. It's, it's true that they are competing, but they're not competing to reduce the budget. They're competing for each one of their services to be the dominant service in terms of providing war fighting services. Well, I, I don't know a great deal about the internal operations here. My approach is a strategic one, and I try to keep to a minimum those occasions in which I speak publicly on subjects about which I do not know anything. It's not totally avoidable in my business, but I try to keep it down. Um, but I am struck, uh, you know, Lauren Thompson is kind of a defender of, of the military in, in many ways and of, of, of the mission. And uh, frankly, listening to his description uh, does not inhibit me from questioning what they say. Um, the notion uh, you could give a very rational explanation for everything they do, but uh, I, I must say I am heartened in my willingness to challenge them by his description of the way they function. <laughs> Uh, another quick question has to do with politics, and it's really it's really two related questions. And, you know, we we were watching the the congressional elections uh, wind their way through, and you have some number of people who profess to be very concerned about the deficit and about shrinking the size of government, uh, which the large military budget would seem to be a, a challenge for them. Uh, is it too soon to say how this is going to play out? Can we make some reasonable predictions as to where the fiscal hawks will come down, whether they will, in fact, uh, be scared away from, uh, from the defense budget, or is there a critical mass here building uh, uh, even among some of the new Republicans? Um, I, that one I do have some views on. I think, uh, and, and uh, what Ben said is absolutely accurate, when everything is going well, if things are going well, uh, deficits were not threatening us in some ways, this wouldn't be possible. But the fact that this has become a very painful set of zero-sum games does put it all into play. I, I, and um, I am struck by the change of a couple of months ago of Barack Obama saying, I'm going to freeze domestic spending, but I'm going to not apply that to the military, to where we are today. I think this is very much in flux. Um, there are clearly going to be more restraints on military spending than I thought. And I, I don't know what the end, what we do hope to do, though, is to get into uh, the broader question of, uh, of, of strategy. And I think that's, uh, that that's a very real possibility. 
as people contemplate what has to be done substantially to reduce the deficit, it is inevitable that uh, these kind of questions are going to get considered. And so people can have the alternative either, well, there are three, so it's not an alternative situation. There are three choices. One, very substantial combination, increased taxes, reductions in things that are very popular with American people, transportation, environmental protection, law enforcement at local level. Or you give up trying to get the deficit down. Or you put military on the table in addition to doing some of those first things. So I think uh, this is moving in the direction that I'd like to see it, where, where we're going to have to reconsider um, what, what uh, America's role is and uh, whether or not we have to uh, step back from, from the kind of uh, being the guy for the whole world. I, I think that the, the zero-sum choices are going to force that into play. I agree with that. Um, I had a meeting with Secretary Gates about two months ago, and it was when he was uh, rolling out his efficiency initiatives. And uh, it be gradually began to dawn on me that he was going to save $100 billion and not give any money back to the Treasury, which I thought was sort of perverse. So I, 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 I asked him in this meeting, well, I don't understand. How would you deal with the deficit? It's huge. You know, we were actually borrowing a billion dollars every six hours, right, largely from China. Remember, the guys were trying to defend ourselves against. And um, so I asked him, how would you do with this? And he said, I think everybody knows what the answer is to the deficit. And I said, oh, I don't know. Tell me. And he said, it's entitlements. So I went home, and I did some math, okay? And I discovered that because we're borrowing about 40% of the federal budget today, if you take debt service and defense off the table, in order to balance the current budget, you would have to cut Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid by 50%. 50%. Now, how politically likely is this? It's not going to happen. Not even it would, Hollywood ne would never even accept a, uh, a screenplay based on that science fiction premise, right? Okay, so the, what Congressman Frank says is exactly right. When you run out of money and it's a zero-sum game and you have to make cuts, then you start prioritizing and in a political system, it is obvious that defense has to go down in these circumstances. If we were facing a really huge threat, you know, it would be different, but as Ben says, we're not. It's a fairly modest threat that we're facing, and therefore we are going to have to cut defense. The only question is whether we do it intelligently or not. Okay, so one last question related oh, to this. Chris, can I, uh, sorry. Um, I actually did, I did some analysis on the Tea Party. I had an intern put together a, a spreadsheet of all the positions that, well, actually not the Tea Party, all the Republicans took on defense spending. Uh, and it turned out that being a new Republican uh, meant nothing in terms of your willingness to cut the defense budget. Uh, what it did uh, show, uh, or in other words, Republicans who are new were more likely to have no coherent position on the issue. So uh, to me, that means that there's hope because uh, these people are coming up in this particular environment uh, and seem more likely to be, to be swayed. Okay, one quick last question then. Uh, what about the politics and the re relevant congressional committees? Because it seems like uh, the, the likely chair people uh, of the important committees are among uh, the least uh, convinced by the arguments that we've put on the table here. Maybe we should have invited them and given them a front row seat for this discussion. But is there, uh, does this matter? How, how, how concerned should we be about the fact that uh, the new, the new chair, uh, chairman of the relevant committees are, are among the most hawkish and most committed to a, a large and growing defense budget? Well, first I'd say with regard to the House, the armed services uh, minority is probably not going to be the case. The, the appropriations, it will be. But the answer is, if uh, normal rules applied, that would govern 
et cetera. But I think what, what I want to say, what I say is, they're not going to be in charge of this anymore. Um, and it is really, at this point, going to be the budget committees. I mean, the, the budget process, which has never been of enormous significance, um, is going to become more significant this year because you are going to have zero sums. And again, you do have people, and they may have made these pledges without fully realizing it, but there are people who are committed to reducing the deficit. And I think uh, that is going to constrain them so that it's not going to be up to the, uh, uh, the, the committee people, the armed services and appropriators, nearly as much as it's going to be. Uh, and, and I take it back. The armed services people, yeah, they'll be for more. But the appropriators are going to have other things that they're going to have to worry about. And the budget committee chairs are the ones who are going to make the decisions. And I think, for instance, Paul Ryan is uh, not likely to be a guy who's going to say, gee, defense is exempt. All right. Well, uh, we do have a little bit of time for questions. Please wait for the uh, microphone. Please identify yourself and your affiliation. And uh, please, uh, this is the Jeopardy rule, please uh, phrase your question in the form of a question. No statements, please. Uh, right there. Thank you. Uh, my name is Peter Gluck. Um, my question is along uh, the direction of strategy for getting this done. If you take uh, defense off the table, as Heritage and others want to do, and you take tax increases off the table as the club for growth, and it's advocates want to do, you virtually have no deficit reduction. So what about a strategy such as was used with the base closing process, where you present a package to Congress and they voted up or down, they can't cherry pick things? Right. Good question. Who's, yeah, but, but who's you? You said you present a package. Well, no, the, nobody's going to give the administration the power to look, even the base commission thing was hard fought. I voted for it. Um, but the base commission was much narrower. You were not going to get members of Congress voting to give authority to a commission. Look, at it. the president tried to do that, and the Republicans, uh, having originally talked about a deficit reduction commission, said, no, I don't think you, you have the... I mean, it would take a vote in Congress to empower such a commission, and I don't think you're going to see that. I think your basic thesis is valid. I think this has to be taken out of the normal political process. Uh, maybe it's a constitutional issue, or maybe it's something else. But if you can frame an initiative as something that is good government and fairly abstract and doesn't bite for a couple of years down the road, you might be able to get the Congress to pass it. I mean, my prediction is it's going to take some failures before there are successes, that there's going to be bought on the floor. I think you're going to first, the fascinating fact, apparently, for the first time in anybody's memory, Members of Congress have declined seats on the Appropriations Committee. <laughs> Republican members have said, I don't want to be on the Appropriations Committee. The Appropriations Committee, which has been a great plum, is now going to be a great pain in the ass because you're going to be uh, expected to come up with cuts and things that are very popular, et cetera. And uh, so I think it's, nobody knows how this works, but I think, first of all, there's going to be frustration and anger and, and bitterness and uh, Democrats sitting back and saying, ha-ha, we told you so, and um, uh, Republicans grappling with uh, trying to reduce the deficit, but understand, coming to, so I don't know how it, how it eventuates, but it's going to take some pain and some blood, uh, and I think maybe by the end of this year, people can say, well, wait a minute, we've got to go back and look at this. Right here, sir. Bill Sweet, Magazine. Um, looking at, uh, Dr. Thompson said something quite interesting, actually, when he said that the Navy has been sniping at the marine version of the JSF for 20 years. Um, what that implies, in fact, is the fact that the aircraft has been 
under development, under consideration for almost 20 years, under full-scale development for 15, um, and it's still some years away from entering service. Now, do you, anyone got a view here on whether if we just put in some kind of draconian re, um, restriction on the time we take to develop these things, we would avoid these colossally expensive projects? Um, because, you know, in programmatic terms, We've been go we have so many programs like EFV right. and uh, V22. Right. They've been going for 20 years and have delivered little or nothing to the user. So do you, would you agree with a sort of draconian measure that would say, hey, I'm, let's I'm, stop taking so long to do this? A time limit. How do we, is there a way to do that? Uh, well, there is, but almost every time we try to reform the acquisition system, we get these unforeseen consequences that make it even worse. Uh, we've been going through this since Gold War and Nichols. I mean, actually, Bill, you probably understand this even better than I do, since you're more of an expert on it than I am. But um, let me give you an example of what I mean. We had a story last month that the cost of the uh, F-35 program might go up by $5 billion in terms of development. Okay, now, $5 billion is a lot of money. In the total scheme of that program, it's only a 10% increase, but $5 billion is like half the defense budget of Australia for a year. So why is this happening? Is there a major problem with the program? Actually, there isn't. The problem is that they're having an argument in the Office of Secretary of Defense between the budgeteers and the testers. And the testers have figured out that, well, once this program is in production, we don't need testers anymore, okay? <laughs> And so these testers who were put in place by Congress a generation ago in order to improve the acquisition system have now become a roadblock, an obstacle to dispatch in terms of fielding this thing. They literally want to add thousands of additional flight tests to make certain we've got this absolutely right. And one person told me this, it might be apocryphal, but he told me this story about a person in the testing community saying, you know, I don't want this thing to ever fly. I've got kids to put through college. <laughs> okay? Okay? And I, although I'm not sure I believe the story, it, it, is, it really is indicative of the fact that once you create a bureaucracy to do some purpose, over time it becomes self-serving and self-perpetuating and ends up getting in the way of what it was originally supposed to accomplish. Can I also add, here's the problem, is that uh, uh, Draco did not preside in a democracy, and we have this constitutional principle in America that nothing that's been done cannot be undone by the next Congress or even later in the same Congress. That's the problem. Uh, you know, unless you constitutionalize it, and it's virtually, you, you couldn't constitutionalize this, uh, embed it in the Constitution, uh, you can set yourself all the deadlines in the world and it just takes uh, an amendment to an appropriations bill to undeadline it. But can I add, I don't know if this is out of order, but I yeah, I, I appreciate what, what Warren said, but I, I want to take issue, and I think here's where I think Ben and I may be on the same side, when you said, well, if we wanted to be an isolationist or autarkic nation. First, I think by your definition, we're the only non-isolationist or autarkic nation in the world, because we're the only one who has taken on this obligation. You said, if we want to have submarines all over the world, well, why do we have to have submarines all over the world? Why does anybody else have any submarines? I mean, that's part of it. There's an implicit assumption uh, and, and by the way, I, I know we've got to protect the sea lanes from China, I'm told. Why in the hell would the Chinese who make all that money on those sea lanes want to have them shut down? Why don't they protect the sea lanes? I mean, if I were the guy selling everything, I think I'd want to police the route that my delivery men were on. I wouldn't wait for the customer uh, to do it. But I think there's an implicit difference here, which is 
your definition of autarkic and isolation is that the only way not to be is to take on a worldwide uh, defensive posture. I, you know, I, why can't Western Europe defend Western Europe? Actually, actually, you're at least half right. I shouldn't have said autarkic because if we were autarkic, you're right. We wouldn't. Okay, but let me. I just want to. Unfortunately. During the, the time since I remember 1972 watching you standing on Charles Street with a petition, <laughs> since that time we've gone from 10% of the manufactured uh, goods in the United States being made in the United States to over, uh, being uh, made overseas to over 30%. And so if you want to have a television or you want to have a cell phone or if you want to have a camera, it's going to come from somewhere overseas. And as a practical matter, if you want to sell things back, somebody has to make certain but here's the flaw in what you're not saying. impeded. You're assuming that we're the only ones that have to protect the, the lanes for commerce. Other people have as well. They want to sell and buy. You, you were taking on, you, you were imposing on us the unilateral obligation physically to keep uh, the places open. Well, Barney, take, I, let me go back to one specific issue. Anelia, in Western Europe, why are we, what is our role in the defense of Western Europe? Why can't Western Europe defend itself without us? Um, and, I, and as I said, well, if you're not there, you know, you got to show you're, you're an ally by having troops there. So where are the Belgian troops in North Dakota? I mean, I, I, I don't understand that. But why should we be taking on an obligation to defend Western Europe? Why shouldn't Western Europe be in charge of Western Europe and we'll cooperate with them maybe in some other places? You don't think that Manitoba is a dagger pointed at the heart of the Dakotas? <laughs> the, uh, Only if you're a wheat farmer. <laughs> You know, if I could just, just say briefly in response to that, I'd like to quote the late Wes Aspen out of context from an article from 30 years ago, and it has to do with getting other people to carry the burden. It's not that it can't happen, and it's not that it shouldn't happen. It's just we know from experience it won't happen. They're not going to do it. All right, now in the case of Europe, they don't have any threats, so you're right. We shouldn't. But then what are we doing there if they don't have any threats? I agree. But there are a lot of other places in the world where there are significant problems. I mean, they're, sometimes they're trivial, like pirates off of Somalia, who are a lot like the Barbary pirates 200 years earlier. And other times they are really significant problems that we have to be able to deal with. We can't simply assume the rest of the world will protect us. We're not, but it's got to do it case by case. But if we agree on we can get out of Western Europe, then we've met a lot of Oh, I agree. Ben, ben, Ben's going to resolve, resolve this. Uh, no, I'm, gonna, I'm not. I, um, <laughs> I want to go even further. I mean, I think, you know, the idea that trade depends on military protection, very popular. And so I know I'm off sort of out on a limb here. But I actually don't think it's really true in most cases. I think the... Uh, very few shipments now see some sort of military vessel protecting it. And what's going to happen if they didn't? Let's say you can't get something from that particular sea lane, then there's going to be another sea lane that's used for another good, and the price might go up a little. And so you might actually be seeing a more accurate price of the good you're consuming. You're priced in security, right? So uh, I, don't, I don't think that, you know, the international economy would collapse without policing, although I'm not for none. And uh, just going back to the last two questions, I just wanted to make a real quick comment. You know, in government, there's lots of places for scientific expertise, like expert panels and uh, sort of this idea that you can do acquisition in an apolitical, scientific way. But you can't get the politics out of politics. And that's the problem in both, ca both cases. And uh, you, in acquisition, this stuff is just way too important. Uh, you know, it's not delivering the mail. It's, it's, it's going to be uh, inherently political. And that's why it takes, there are political reasons why this happens. And there's, you know, a deficit reduction committee is trying to achieve uh, what, what you're talking about. But this is 
scientifically, bipartisan, in a bipartisan way. But this is the core thing that government does, and politicians have got to be in charge of it, I think. Ben, I'm in complete ben, agreement except on one point. Delivering the mail, also political. Try and get rid of Saturday delivery. <laughs> ben, there's this place called the Strait of Hormuz, right? We're on one side of it, and on the other side of it is two-thirds of all the world's known oil reserves. Guess who sits astride it? Iran. This is a lot faster as a way of getting global influence than trying to develop a nuclear weapon, and they know that. Now, even if we got none of our oil from Saudi Arabia or Iraq, if they were able to block that route, oil here would sell for $200 a barrel overnight. We can't let something like that happen. The argument but we have taken on much more than that. I keep hearing the sea lanes to China. Um, and that's a, you've given a very specific exception, but I would differ with Ben Olin. I would stay with South Korea, given that nutbag that they're dealing with, although they, they have the main forces themselves, but not Japan and not the others. Yeah, that's the exception. But I think here's the difference between us. I think people arguing with you do start out with the assumption that America's got the worldwide responsibility. I start out with the assumption that we don't. I will then grant that there are specific situations where we have to intervene, and I think I'd come up with a lot less to do. The argument that there are times to defend shipments of goods, particularly in wars, or that there are places in the world where shipments need defending is not, to me, an argument for defending all shipments all the time or for the level of forces we're devoting to that mission. So I just I think we got to make a distinction there. All right, I have time for two more. I've had patient right there, right uh, on the second row with the hand up, right there, right there. Yep, Mike. Yeah. I actually um, saw that gentleman next, so go ahead. I've worked on these kinds of comprehensive reviews of the defense budget periodically since 1969. And uh, the panel discussed one of the big hurdles, which is the local economic interests of members of Congress. But I wanted to ask about what to me has always been the other one, and that is more than any other issue I've worked on, it's presented to the public as a binary question. Do you want to be safe or not? Without breaking down the difference between NATO and Somali pirates or North Korea. And so the, answer, the answer is always, if you want to be safe, you got to build everything and so forth. Right. Uh, we've in the past tried to use retired blunt military folks like Admiral Crowd, General Zinni, but I'm wondering how you would suggest we can best deal with that perception by the public that it's a binary question, you want to be safe or not. Let, let me do a quick, one we have been trying, and I've been trying in this panel and the paper we did in the Sustainable Task Force, but the second thing I would say is this, given the fears that people have had going back from Hitler and Stalin and the communists, and yeah, there were some real existential threats to freedom and 9-11, and, and the only way we're gonna do it is by the fact that we have now had, by reality, created a situation in which it's a zero-sum game. I think in the abstract, it would have been very hard to have made those arguments. Uh, but I do think that where we are now, um, Harold McMillan was asked on his retirement what, in his experience, had most affected uh, uh, politics, talking about strategy, he said, events, dear boy, events. Um, it's the deficit that's made that possible. So I agree with your frustration in the past, but I believe that the deficit and the very strong national consensus that we must substantially reduce the deficit creates a, a new set of, of, of conditions. Just to uh, echo that, I, the John Stuart Mill talks about a free marketplace of ideas, right? And I think that's actually kind of a naive thing uh, in, in a liberal democracy. But 
when you have competition for resources in the sort of zero-sum situation that Congressman Frank is talking about, I think you get a more effective debate uh, and people learn more. And so I think there's a little bit of hope in that. Okay, one more question right there at the rail. Yes, sir, you've been very patient. Right there. Yep. Good afternoon. My name is Atul Singh. I'm the founder and chief editor of uh, Fair Observer, which is a journal that will be covering global issues and launching next year. Uh, my quick question is, all of you agree that uh, the military budget should be scaled back and the U.S. troops should be out of Japan and Europe. My question to you is, what events and what thinking and what strategic uh, reappraisal will it take for this to transpire? Panels like this. Well, two more conferences and we ought to have it done. Yeah. <laughs> right. Again, I, I can just repeat what I said. In the abs I've been frustrated by banging my head against that wall. Les Aspen's comment that was quoted was against my amendment with Pat Schroeder to do burden sharing. That was the comment from Les, and it wasn't out of context. That was the context. Um, although I would say they certainly aren't going to do it as long as they think we'll fall. But I, I, again, there is a very strong national... Look, Jack Kemp and others used to say, don't worry about the deficit, nobody cares about the deficit. That's been true politically up until now. I believe there is a strong national consensus, intellectual opinion, academic opinion, public opinion, that we have an unsustainably large and growing deficit. And that is what transforms the situation. And when it is, should we or shouldn't we have troops in Europe, the answer will be yes. Should we have troops in Europe or raise the retirement age for Social Security or stop doing things environmentally, et cetera, then you get a very different answer. I don't know the outcome, but it is, it is an argument we haven't had before because of that context. I agree completely with that. We're, we're just lucky that at the moment we have a huge deficit, we have a fairly modest threat, and that makes it possible point, to make right. these decisions. Point, right. But it's not a strategic thing. That's a very good point. Just a matter of ends and means. We're out of money, and we have to make choices. Ben, you want to wrap this all up? Nope, he's done. Okay. Thank you all very much. Thank you all very much. Um, uh, as uh...